0: I'm at the end of, uh, towards the end of my sermon today, um, but I want to start this morning by drawing your attention to the theme of God's promise. God made a promise in Genesis chapter nine. I want to talk about that. What is the the nature of a promise? What is what's the purpose, the function of a promise? Think about a nervous young couple standing before a minister on their wedding day and they make some, some promises, some weighty promises to have and to hold uh, for better or for worse in sickness or in health from this day forward to death do us part. What is that promise doing? It's, it's binding them together in a relationship of trust. They are giving their word to one another and saying you can trust me and therefore we can love together, and live together. When I was ordained, I made promises, and many of you were there when I was ordained. I made some promises in the presence of witnesses. And sometimes I'll go back and I'll look at those promises that I've made to remind myself of the, the task and the duty that I have before me. Promises like to be diligent in the study of Scripture, to persevere in prayer, to work with God's people, to build up the church of Jesus Christ. So we make promises. Even children, when they're playing together, will make promises. Do you promise to do this? And if it's really serious, it's the pinky promise. <laughs> and I hear that occasionally in my house. Pinky promise. When we make promises, we're saying, you can trust me. I give you my word, and, and, and therefore we can, once again, be in relationship together. Now, in our Old Testament reading, God makes a promise to Noah. Verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the whole earth. You see, the, the flood raised several questions, but one question was this. Is this how God is always, is this how God is always going to relate to evil and wickedness? Is God just periodically going to wipe the slate clean every couple of generations and start over again? The Bible is clear that God did not act arbitrarily in sending the flood. He, he didn't fly off the handle in a fit of rage. He acted morally. He was grieved at the state of humanity. It says in Genesis 6:6, the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God looked out and he saw the wickedness of humankind. He saw violence. He saw innocent blood being shed. Before the story of the flood is the story of Cain and Abel, and the the bloodshed there within that family, and that blood that cried out to God. And, um, And so God saw that violence in the family of Cain and Abel, and the violence began to spread throughout humanity, and it grieved him. And it says that he was sorry that he had made man. And then there was sexual degradation. People were crossing uh, boundaries sexually and debasing themselves. So in many different ways, people were turning from God and his law and becoming more and more corrupt, And, and God sent the flood as an act of moral judgment. I think we can relate to, to this sense of moral outrage. I mean, the, the flood was a terrible thing. It was a terrible judgment. But I think we can relate in our day to the sense of moral outrage when we see violence being perpetrated on innocent people. And we've seen a lot of images of that lately, haven't we? People in orange jumpsuits kneeling down before executioners. Innocent blood being shed. And when we see that, we say, this is wrong. Something has to be done. This has got to stop. And so God, out of a a sense of his own justice, um, sent the flood. But then he says, after the flood, never again. I'm never going to send a worldwide judgment that will destroy the earth through a flood. And and after the flood, in this covenant that he makes with Noah, he reveals that his desire, his heart, is not to destroy. It's not to destroy, but it's to save. And it's to recreate, to begin again. Instead of flooding the world with his judgment, God is going to send out his covenant promises to the world. And that is how God is going to respond to human wickedness and evil until he wraps up history until the end of time when he will bring a final judgment and put the world to rights once and for all. But God begins again with Noah and his family. And he says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. A covenant is a binding agreement. God, the Creator, doesn't have to bind himself to us. God doesn't have to make promises to us. God is taking the initiative in this covenant. I will make my covenant with you. God is choosing in the wake of human wickedness to do this, and so this is an act of God's grace. I'm going to take the initiative here to make a covenant and to begin again. And it's interesting because God doesn't need anything for us. Oftentimes when we make covenants or promises to one another... Part of our motivation is that we need something else in this relationship. That's why we enter into the relationship. When I made promises to be ordained, part of the motivation was I needed to be ordained. And I needed a place to serve. So that was part of the reason why I made those promises. When I make promises to my wife, Yes, honey, I promise I'll clean the house before the company comes. I'm making that uh, promise partly for selfish reasons because if I don't do it, uh, then I'll hear about it again and again and again. So I make the promise so I don't have to hear about it, and then I try to do it, God being my helper. (laughs) So I don't have to hear about it. When we make promises, we're usually doing it at least partly because we're getting something out of it. But God makes covenant promises out of sheer grace, because we don't have anything He needs. We don't have anything He needs. It's out of His mercy. He's saying, I'm not going to give up on the people that I've made in my image. I'm not going to give up on my creation. Every covenant has a sign, and the rainbow is the sign of God's covenant with Noah. Every time we see a rainbow, we can remember God's promise that He will not destroy. Um, a poet described a rainbow as the seven colors of God's love. Every time you look at a rainbow, you can realize that this is a sign of the promises of God, the love of God that he will not destroy. And when things are spinning out of control and it, and it seems like we hear every day of different threats, of natural disaster and warfare and famine, we can remember that God is still in control and he promises to preserve creation and life. One commentator made a point here um, that I particularly like as a father of a big family. He said, any Christian discussion regarding modern concerns of overpopulation must take this story into account. God wants life to go on. After the flood, God says to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and and multiply. It's a new beginning. There are parallels here with the first creation, with Adam. This is a new beginning. Recreation, rather. Carl Sandburg, the poet, said, A baby is God's opinion that the world should go on. (laughs) A baby is God's opinion that the world should should go on. So God is making here uh, with Noah a covenant of preservation, of life, of peace, so that things can begin anew under his promise. And so that he will gather a people to himself that will be a covenant people. People of the promise, people who believe his promises, live by his promises, are shaped by his promises, by his word. What word and what promise is shaping your life today? Who are you trusting in? We all trust in something, in some word. Are you trusting in the word of God, in the promises of God? This covenant that God made with Noah foreshadows a greater covenant to come, the covenant through Jesus Christ. Noah was a righteous man. The Bible says he was a righteous man in his generation. But if you read the rest of the story of Noah, you you understand that he wasn't perfectly righteous. He was a good man. He was a righteous man. I named my son Noah because of that very fact. I want him to be a righteous man in this generation. But he wasn't perfectly righteous. At the end of the story of Noah, it kind of ends tragically. He, He became drunk and he was disgraced. None of us are perfectly righteous except Jesus Christ. And in our gospel reading for this first Sunday in Lent, we read about the temptation of Jesus. And, and, the, and the gospel says, Mark says that Jesus was, this is a strong word, the spirit him, impelled him, impelled him, thrust him into the wilderness. There's a sense of necessity about this, that Jesus must And he must go through the test. Why? Because he must prove himself to be the righteous one. And it's in his righteousness and because of his righteousness that we are saved. And he must prove himself to be the victor over sin and Satan and death. And it's in his victory that we can have victory over sin and Satan and death. In him is our salvation. And Jesus throughout his life was tempted in every way but he did not sin and then he went to the cross and he offered his perfect life to God and the flood of God's judgment the waters of God's just anger and wrath towards sin my sin and your sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross and he took our punishment and he took our place and he is the ark of safety for all of us. When you believe that, that I need a Savior, that I've sinned against God, that I'm living my life apart from God, but I hear God calling me back through the cross of Jesus, a message of forgiveness and love and peace to me. When you believe that, it changes you. And that's how God changes the world. That's how God is now remaking the world. That's how the kingdom of God is coming into the world. as His people again and again. This is why we come each week and again to hear the promises of God in Christ Jesus. To hear this message of forgiveness and love and pardon and assurance that he is. And this is the message that we need to proclaim to our world that is so divided and so conflicted. Uh, I remember reading some time ago of two Irish terrorists who were active in Ireland during the time of the Troubles. The infamous Troubles of Ireland. Between 1969 and 1987, several thousand were killed in Ireland and more than 26,000 people were injured in this war between Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants. And so there were these two terrorists that were arrested and thrown into prison together, a Catholic named Liam McCloskey and a Protestant named Jimmy Gibson. They were both in this prison together, and they found themselves going to the same Bible study. And it was there in that Bible study that they heard this message of God's love and forgiveness for them, and they both received that message, and it changed their life. They began to act differently toward one another. The the, the Catholics and the Protestants, led by these two men, Liam and Jimmy, began to model unity and peace and harmony. In 1983, Prison Fellowship hosted a conference in Belfast called In Christ Reconciliation. In Christ Reconciliation. Right at the heart or right during the, the times of the Troubles. And Liam and Jimmy were able to attend. The, pre, the, the, the prison gave them a furlough to, to attend for, for that week. The highlight of the conference was when they stood up together in that conference with their arms around each other. And Liam said, my hope for Ireland is to believe that God is changing the hearts of men like me and Jimmy. And that's the only hope that I have for peace. And he said, if I had seen Jimmy on the streets before I met Christ, I would have killed him. But now he's my brother in Christ, and I would die for him. What a transformation. That's the hope that Christ can give. It's that internal change. We realize God loves us even though we deserve judgment. He still loves us. He's demonstrated it on the cross. And that frees us to forgive other people. And our world desperately needs to hear that message. And we need to believe in those promises. This is how God changes a wicked and violent and corrupt world with the message of forgiveness and peace found in the New Covenant promises of Jesus Christ. Uh, The Noahic Covenant had a sign, the beautiful sign of the rainbow. Here in the New Covenant, we have signs of... What are the New Covenant signs that we have? That Jesus... Not rhetorical. Give Give me... is a covenant sign. The work of But the two main covenant signs are this. They're the, they're the sacraments that the Lord gave us. Holy Communion and what we celebrated here today baptism. In Holy Communion, in you know, the the supper, the, the the first night Jesus says, "This is the blood of my new covenant." Shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So whenever we Take the bread and take the wine. It's a covenant pledge of God's forgiveness to us, and we need to receive it that way. It's a sign of the covenant. And baptism is a sign of God's promises. Baptism symbolizes the cleansing of sin. And it's also a sign of being buried with Christ in death and raised to new life through His victory. When we baptize uh, uh, an infant or a child, we're doing something very significant, and God is doing something very significant. We're blessing this child, and we're speaking over this child the covenant promises of God, and we're praying for this child that this child will grow up in the community of faith, in the family of God, and one day receive those covenant promises for herself. We're praying that Isabel, one day, that this covenant promises that have been given to her is something that she'll claim for herself. In the meantime, God is pouring his mercy and grace upon her. And we're all part of that process here. We get to be part of seeing this child raised for as long as God gives her to us to do that. So what a privilege it is to celebrate today. It's a time for all of us when we celebrate baptism to remember that we are united by Christ or to Christ by by his death we will be raised with Christ to new and unending life. We we celebrate a baptism and remember our own baptism and the promises contained in that baptism. And we need to remember these promises today. I'll just close with this. We'll wrap it up here. This weekend I went to two few you ever had a weekend where it's been like that one right after the other? One on Friday the funeral of uh, Eve Cashella's son, and many of you were there and knew knew Eve. He was a member of this. One time, her son in his twenties was killed, murdered, tragically in St. Louis, shot to death. So that was that was tough. That was a real tough one. And then Saturday, um, my brother-in-law's father died in his sixties of muscular dystrophy, and uh, there was a man that loved his family, loved his grandchildren. I learned at the funeral that he went on many missions trips, 19 missions trips. So missions was at the heart of his, his life, his passion. And so you walk away from a weekend like that, and you realize that we have some precious promises in Jesus Christ that the world doesn't have. The world can't do these tragedies in the way that a Christian can. By God's grace, we have been given the promise of new and eternal life through Jesus Christ. And we're, we're called to proclaim those promises and to live by those promises each and every day. God is a God who delights not in destruction. It grieves him. God delights in new beginnings, and that's what the story of Noah teaches us. And maybe you need to hear that for your life. God doesn't delight in meting out justice. He delights in giving people new life and new beginnings and fresh hope through the promise of Jesus Christ. Trust in those promises today. Amen.